Proverbs 18 and verse number 24. Thus far in our study in the book of Proverbs, the organization of the book itself has been given to a regular treatment. In other words, we've gone about our study of Proverbs in a chapter-by-chapter and verse-by-verse way, which is our customary approach to the study of the Bible here. But as you probably know, there is a big portion of the book of Proverbs which is simply not given to that approach. Chapters 10 through basically chapter 28 is a gathering of disparate sayings, collections of wisdom, these short, pithy, memorable statements which package incredible truth into a small verse often communicating very complex issues in such a way as to make them understandable and accessible for even the most unlearned or inexperienced among us. Proverbs, in this powerful way of communicating, takes top-shelf truth and puts it way down low where all of us can reach for it. This powerful mode of communication, this insight into complex issues in the simplest of terms, provides us insight into areas of life we don't often consider to be a part of our spiritual life. We get street-level insight as to how to live and conduct ourselves in parts of our lives usually reserved in our heart and mind as secular areas of life. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is to permeate all of our life. Every decision we make, everything we do is colored by our glad-heartedness at the power and the truth of the gospel. Everything that we do, our business life, our married life, our family life, relationships in general, our investment world, everything that we do, our work life is shaped by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our life. Now, one of the things that's really excited me about the book of Proverbs is the ability to get to these street-level issues and observe the wisdom of God's Word and its instruction as to how we conduct ourselves in some of the most basic, regular parts of our life. And one of the areas where Proverbs provides such incredible practical wisdom is in the area of interpersonal relationships how we interact with those around us. Proverbs provides such tremendous insight as to how we can conduct ourselves in such a way as to be regarded as warm and friendly and generous, being the kind of people that others delight to be in the presence of. Not harsh or prickly or off-putting, but warm and delightful to share company with. Proverbs helps us in that area of our life. So we're going to begin to see that. We're going to read as our text, formally, chapter 18 and verse 24. But keep your Bibles handy. We'll be looking at dozens of passages from across the book of Proverbs in our time together. If you found your way to Proverbs 18, 24, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Proverbs 18, 24. The Bible says here, A man with many friends may be harmed, but there's a friend who stays closer than a brother. May the Lord bless and honor the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. 
This is very much a time in history when relationships are at a low. You may have a great many superficial acquaintances, friends, and the general superficial sense. But by my observation anyway, there are very few friendships with any degree of depth. We're set up for that by virtue of the environment in which we've come up. There are considerable factors contributing to our our inability to form and to forge strong and lasting relationships that have considerable meaning in our life. It's not just the most obvious factors either. Most apparent being texting and social media. Most people would rather send a three-word text message than have a three-minute conversation. I, like, I get it. That's, I'm, I'm self-diagnosing here. We have all of these modes of communicating without actually interacting with one another. If you go into one of our fine Mexican establishments after church this morning, you'll see families sitting around a table looking at their smart devices. We're being programmed, we're being conditioned by virtue of the use of social media and various other technologies that we not interact personally with one another. And although the technology benefits us in many parts of our life, there's a certain detriment that comes along with the use of these technologies as well. More pressing and perhaps more fundamental to the issue of the absence of meaningful relationships is the breakdown of the family unit. I will tell you that in considering this topic and working through this message this week, processing so much of what Proverbs says with regards to relationships, it's forced me to do some self-reflection. If I were to self-psychoanalyze this morning, I would have to concede that I have very few and over the course of my life have had very few of the kind of relationships that demand a great deal of depth and susceptibility from me. In my self-psychoanalysis, I would attribute that to certain childhood experiences, difficulties experienced along the way, and the ease with which it is to keep people at an arm's reach. Proverbs 18.24 helps us to sort of sort between that kind of arm's reach acquaintance and friendship with any degree of depth. A man with many friends may be harmed. That's friendship that's operating on the superficial level. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's someone who weeps with us when we weep, who rejoices with us when we rejoice. That level of friendship, that level of relationship requires something of us that is often very, very difficult for us to give. You can't have a whole bunch of friends because you don't have the bandwidth to operate at that level of depth with a whole lot of people. And for that reason, and given the difficulties of our often shared experience, we're glad to keep people at some degree of distance, to surround ourselves with many acquaintances without acknowledging that there's a level of vulnerability, vulnerability to harm that comes with keeping the world at that kind of distance. Now, if that is my experience, given the frequency with which so many of you have shared in so much of my experience. I suspect that's true for many others, especially for men. If we're given the option of opting out of deep and meaningful relationships or opting in at the cost of some discomfort or emotional vulnerability, we will almost always opt out. 
Now, I don't understand female psychology, as my wife will attest to, but I suspect that that is a shared experience on the part of many of you ladies as well. So let's not act like that we all stopped communicating when we got the ability to text message or to send tweets. This is a process that has long been in motion, our isolating ourselves one from another. One of the things that becomes clear in reading the book of Proverbs is that we need relationships. You may not, by virtue of your experience, by virtue of your psychology, by virtue of the conditioning of social media and technology, you may not want relationships that demand a great deal of you. But it's clear in the book of Proverbs, as it is elsewhere in the Bible, that you fundamentally need relationship and friendship at this level. One of the very first observations that God makes with regards to man is that it is not good that he should be alone. Now that's a male exclusive observation, but it's true of both genders. It is not good that we would be alone. Operating in isolation is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. In fact, I'm not certain that operating in isolation over great periods of time is survivable. If you are in prison and you need some way to be punished because you would not obey the rules in prison, what will they do? They will put you in solitary confinement. They will put you in isolation. It's the only way things can get worse than being in prison, cutting you off from any interaction whatsoever. You and I need friends. You and I need deep and meaningful connections. In fact, you need those superficial friendships as well. But you at the same time need deep, meaningful relationships. Proverbs 30 and verse 29, the Bible says, there are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four which are stately in walk. A lion, which is mighty among beasts and doesn't turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat, and a king whose troops are with him. Now, you may not be familiar with the imagery. There's nothing in my mind terribly impressive about the male goat, at least the domestic version of the male goat, we know in our culture. But the passage is clear. The text is about the relationship between a king and his troops, but furthermore, about the strength that comes to us when we are with our friends and when our friends are with us. We need these kinds of relationships. Now, if we need these kinds of relationships, then we're going to have to work toward fostering them in some way. Which means that not only do we need friends, we need to be friendly people. And this is where Proverbs really, really helps. This means more than just being gregarious and extrovert, affable and outgoing. This means to give ourselves to certain practices and to guard against certain practices so as to endear ourselves to others and to warmly receive those who are around us. Let me give you a, a series of actions you might take to be regarded as friendly. First of all, we should be generous. And I don't mean here exclusively in the way of material generosity, the giving of financial resources or stuff in general. Proverbs 3, 28 says, Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow, I'll give it when you have it with you. 
Don't devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Don't strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Now, generosity in the material sense is certainly a factor in our passage, but there are other modes of generosity expressed in this prohibition. Be willing to give as need arises, yes, but at the same time, don't devise evil against your neighbor or withhold typical neighborly responsibilities. He lives near you and you live near him because neighborhood creates a degree of safety and security. Don't withhold neighborly duties from those around you. Don't strive with a man or fight with a man without cause if he's done you no harm, no harm, no foul. Be slow to take offense and quick to forgive. Be generous. One of the kinds of generosity that I'm especially keen to, probably mostly because I'm a preacher and I speak in public often, is generosity with regards to the way we hear those around us. As a pastor, I've learned through the years that I can control the things that I say most of the time. From time to time, I say something accidentally, but for the most part, I can control what I say, right? However, I have no control whatsoever over what people hear me say. One of the great frustrations of my life as a preacher is post-sermon conversation in which I am hearing snippets of my message come back to me in ways that affirm that this person has no idea what I was talking about or, or heard what they wanted to hear me say rather than hearing what was truly said in the message. And sometimes it can, it can be the complete opposite of the basic point of the sermon itself. Don't do that. Be generous in the way you hear others speak. I call it the golden rule of communication. Jesus said, do unto others, others as you'd have them to do unto you. When we're listening to a person in conversation, we should listen unto them as we would have them listen unto us, seeking to ascertain what it is they intend to communicate rather than wearing our feelings on our sleeve in the hopes that they'll somehow offend us in the course of that conversation. We're living in a culture where we like to catch people. The gotcha moment is a big deal, and we watch press conferences, and we listen to sideline reports, and we listen to speeches, and we even listen to sermons with the hopeful expectation of catching someone saying something in a way they didn't intend to say it or saying something in a way that's socially unacceptable so that we can say, we gotcha. That is not the kind of generosity that the Bible calls us to, the book of Proverbs calls us to, nor our Savior Jesus has called us to listen for what is intended to be communicated. There's a second thing that you can do to be friendly toward others. You can be a person of peace. If there's anything that ought to be said of us as, as heirs to the gifts of the gospel through the Prince of Peace, who has made peace between God and man by the blood of his cross, and has commissioned us as ministers of reconciliation, it ought to be that we are peacemaking people. It ought to be that when a Christian walks into a disruptive, conflicted situation, that peace attends that meeting. It ought to be that we are the kind of people who speak with kindness and gentleness in such a way as to bring unity and togetherness 
in the most severe of conflict, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Proverbs 17, 14, the Bible says, The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 20 and verse 3, the Bible says, It's honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a fight. We are to be people of peace who bring unity even to an environment where discord reigns supreme. This ought to be characteristic of us as the people of Jesus. Now, we've just wrapped up a week of family gatherings. And you have a host of Christmas gatherings that are yet ahead. Not only is the wisdom of Proverbs helpful, it also happens to be quite timely here. I also know that for some of you, you are not only not a person of peace, you are the person of overt discord. When you walk into the room, what had been tranquil is now tumultuous. And there ought to be the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit right now to resolve that what I may have fouled up at Thanksgiving, I will, I will labor to walk worthy in the Christmas holiday. I will be that person of peace pursuing unity and togetherness. My home church pastor used to speak of three categories of people with regards to peacemaking. And he had that knack for, for, for stating things in a memorable way. And he would say there are those people who are peacemakers, who walk under the leadership of God's Holy Spirit, who bring unity into the midst of discord. And then there are peace breakers, those people who by virtue of their presence create disunity. Everywhere they go, a problem follows closely after them. And then there's that third and most dangerous category in the church. Those are the peace fakers who create discord and disharmony, but they disguise it with spiritual concerns and terminology. They say things like, Pastor, I just thought you probably ought to know. Or group, I've got a prayer request. Let me tell you what so-and-so did. And there's no real gospel concern in their heart, only an earnestness to spill the goods. They feign at making peace. Woe unto us if we find ourselves in any other of those categories outside of being a maker of peace. It's honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. When I was, when I was a kid, I can distinctly remember being in the second grade. And I got in a little tussle on the playground, and frankly, I liked it. But I, I, I just knew that my daddy was going to kill me when he found out. And he made the worst mistake. My daddy's a good daddy. I love my daddy. We spent the day together yesterday. But he made, listen to me, he made the worst mistake that a father can make. When I got home from school that day, he said, my son, let me tell you something. As long as you don't start it, you'll never be in trouble with me. But you better finish it. Now, let me tell you how I interpreted that as a little boy. You go whoop on anybody you whoop on for the next 15 years of your life, and we'll all be good. That's how I took that. Now, that's not what he intended, but that's the way I interpreted it. 
and I just liked it. It was just fun. When we were teenage boys, we would fight, and if we couldn't find anybody to fight, we would fight each other. It was just fun. It was just fun. Now, eventually, you get old enough, it starts to hurt, and you start paying for that for days, and others get better at, at that. They, they, they learn what they're doing. Here's what I found out. When you begin to talk to guys that actually know what they're doing, I'm not talking about the guys that fight on a gravel road on a Friday night or in a parking lot on a Saturday night. I mean for real, for money. If you ask them what they might do in a given scenario, you're in this position where there's a threat. Do you know what they will say without exception? What do you do if, if a guy comes up to you on the street and he wants to fight? They will say, big strong men turn and run away. Any fool can start a fight. If you'll get over trying to prove something to the world around you and, and esteem others more highly than yourself and walk in the wisdom of God's Word, you can avoid virtually any quarrel in life. I, I could not count the number of quarrels or fights that I was in as a pre-converted young man. But do you know something? In spite of the fact that I told my daddy every time I got suspended in school or out of school for fighting that I had no choice but to fight. Daddy, I couldn't help it. He started it. I finished it. Remember what you said? It's now been more than 20 years since I came to faith in Jesus. And do you know I haven't had to get whooped or whoop anybody since? Any fool can start a fight. But the wise man walking in the wisdom of God's Word creates an environment in which togetherness and unity and reconciliation can thrive, not discord and disunity. We should be peacemakers. Here's a third thing we ought to do to be friendly people. We should use discretion with our speech. Proverbs 17.9 says, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. There are countless proverbs that speak to the discretion we ought to use with our language, the things that we say, the things that we don't say. We've made of this in the South a virtue. I cannot tell you the number of Southern lady funerals I have attended in my ministry where the pastor at some point extolled of this person's character. You never had to wonder what she thought. That is not a virtue, right? Like, that's not a positive thing. Like, I don't know where that sort of took that turn. Like, the whole world should not know what you think about every issue. And, and contrary to popular belief, the whole world does not care what you think about every issue. And the world is often worse off by being made aware of what you think about every issue. This is the harsh reality. We ought to use discretion with regards to the things that we say. This means being optimistic and positive and not incessantly negative. This means speaking in a way that's edifying, encouraging, that's helpful to those around us. I use this illustration only because it is so demonstrative of what I'm trying to press at here. In the last months, and, and honestly, in the last years of my grandpa's life, the grandpa that I lived with, he became almost unbearable to visit with. 
And I would go. And every time I would go to see him, it was just constant negativity. Do you know what he was complaining about? That it had been so long since I'd come to see him the last time. And it was the same for every member of the family. And I would say to him, Grandpa, if you would just not be so miserable, if you would not make every visit be about how long it had been since the last time someone came to see you, if you would be a delight to spend time with, you might find that rather than dragging in begrudgingly, your family and your friends would delight to spend a great deal of time with you. Now, the reality was it hadn't been that long since I'd come to see him the last time. But he had so allowed himself to fixate on the negative and the miserable, it was all he could see or think. And there are probably some right here in this room so fixated on the negative and the miserable that that's the only thing that you can see or think of. Some of you need to turn off Fox News and go get some exercise and stop living in fear of whatever cataclysmic event is forecasted to unfold next and walk in the joy and the gladness of heart that comes with knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. I know, listen, I know this is a crooked and perverse generation. And I know bad things abound. I know there's a murder every second. I know there's a theft and a robbery. I know your car may be stolen. But Jesus bears all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is the Lord of our life. He has saved us from our sin. We have a great deal to rejoice in. And we really ought to focus fixate there. There's a command in the Bible in Philippians 4.8 that says, meditate on that which is praiseworthy, that which is good, that which is noble, that which is true. Fix your thoughts there. I'm not talking about blind optimism that's willfully ignorant of all of the dreadful things unfolding in the world around us. I'm not talking about that. I'm simply talking about walking in the fullness of the joy that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Using discretion with our speech is more than about not saying cuss words. It's about more than not lying. It's about speaking in a way that is becoming of a person who has been brought from death to life through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should use discretion with regards to the things that we say. Fourth, we should be forgiving people. Like, we should be gracious toward those around us. Like, we're all jacked up. Just be gracious toward the jacked up people in your circle in the hopes that they'll be gracious toward you and all your jacked up mess as well. Proverbs twenty four twenty nine says, Don't say, I'll do to him just as he's done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Being slow to take offense and quick to forgive is a basic Christian principle. Notice that Proverbs 24, 29, I will do to him just as he's done to me, is the inversion of the golden rule. I have three sons, for those that don't know. And some of the funniest conversations that we have had as father and sons through the years have, have been about the golden rule and their misapplication of said rule. In fact, they have virtually quoted Proverbs 24, 29 verbatim. But dad, he did that to me already. 
I was just doing it back to him. And I can remember, I can remember distinctly, with each of the older boys especially, looking into their confused eyes. They could not understand that retribution is not permissible. You're saying, Dad, do unto him as you, as, as you would have him do unto me, but he already did this. Apparently, this is what he would do. I'm just doing it back, Dad. I don't get it. But that is not the golden rule. Do unto others as they have done unto you. It is to do unto them as you would have them do unto you with no careful five- or six-year-old qualifications of the principle. Be forgiving and gracious toward those around you, slow to take offense and quick to forgive this basic Christian principle. Now, those are four things we can do to be friendly. But I want to give you a fifth. And I'll admit it's just a catch-all category to gather everything that I've missed and saying we ought to be generous, we ought to be forgiving, we ought to be makers of peace, and we ought to be discreet with our speech. All of these principles that are born out of Proverbs. Fifth and lastly, we should be wise. We should be wise. And Proverbs helps with some of this stuff. Like, there's probably a person in your life and you know if you get in a conversation with them, it's going to be 30 minutes, right? And it's like, geez, what? I don't have time for this today. There, there's probably a person in your life that just gets on your nerves. And, and you just don't appreciate their company. And, and there, there, there might be a person in your life who's just a little too enthusiastic all the time. And you're just like, geez, man, I'm just, you know, I'm just not in the frame of mind to be able to deal with that today. And so you might, you might think, you might think, oh, that's just me. I'm just not doing like this. No, but these are, these are Proverbs wisdom issues, which are, let me give you some examples of this. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house lest he become weary of you and hate you. And see, some of you drive into your garage and you put the door down quick. And you don't turn lights on in the house in the hopes that someone doesn't notice that you're there because you have an annoying neighbor. That's not something disconnected from our spiritual life. The greater concern for me today is that you're the annoying neighbor. That, that, that your friends and neighbors are driving into their garage and turning off all the lights in the hopes that you don't come by. Proverbs helps us with, with this. I'll get to wisdom and sorting through some of this in just a moment. Proverbs twenty six seventeen says, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. And there's countless other passages like this. There's a proverb that says that if you greet your neighbor too loudly in the morning, he'll hate you. In, in other words, if your neighbor is a morning person and you're annoying in the morning, he will probably not like you. We have a standing rule in our home. I don't talk to or touch my wife until she's had a gallon of coffee. And then we're all good. She's good after that. Seriously. I, like a gallon. One of these big, giant metal. And she stirs it. Y'all want the inside baseball scoop here? With, one, with a long butter knife, and it rattles in that metal cup, which drives me to distraction at 6 o'clock in the morning. 
So how do you, how do we sort through these things, right? Like the person that comes and stays too long doesn't realize they do or they wouldn't do it. And the person that is a little too energetic in the morning doesn't realize they are or they might not do it. How do we sort through that? How do we self-assess to make sure we're not the violator? Because you've got faces and names running through your mind right now. But there's this inkling thought in the back of your head, could I be the person if you go back in your mind, and maybe even in the text to Proverbs eighteen twenty four, where we started, a man with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. The level of acquaintance, your connection to that person is a largely selfish connection. The most basic level of acquaintance is the kind of person that you can walk into a room, see, acknowledge, and find some degree of conversation with them to avoid the awkwardness of isolation in the crowd. But your connection to them, your draw to them, is mostly self-serving. And I don't mean that in an exclusively negative way. It's just that superficial level of connection that exists. I know if I walk into a room, there's a person I recognize. There's some degree of background and connection that allows me the ability to go and connect with them so I'm not standing by myself in this room full of people. But the friend that sticks closer than a brother, there's a selflessness about that connection. You've got to give something of yourself to be connected at that level. Your friend weeps, you will weep. Your friend rejoices, you will rejoice. And again, you can't have a lot of friends because you don't have the bandwidth for that kind of emotional weight. But I think if you take that idea, the distinction between acquaintance and friend with depth, one being mostly self-serving, the other being almost entirely selfless, that's where we begin to be able to sort through some of these wisdom issues with regards to our interactions with other people. Am I, am I counting on the possibility that this person is in need of some contribution I might make? Or is my complete expectation that they're going to fit or serve some personal need that I might have? I may see them in the crowd, but have I factored for the probability that they might need me in this moment? What leads me to them? Is it a desire to be serviced myself, served in some kind of way, or is it there's some angst, some want, esteeming others more highly than myself that motivates me to go to them with the expectation that they may be in need at that particular moment? See, if I'm getting up in the morning as the morning person and I need to vent, I need to talk, I might be compelled to run to my wife before that gallon of coffee. But if I'm counting on the fact that she may have a need in that moment, and that need will not involve her husband until after that gallon of coffee. Now there's the wisdom to say, grant some space, some margin, and allow her the freedom to do what she needs to do to get the day started on the right foot. If, if I'm anxious to go and visit my neighbor too often, because I need conversation and I'm an extrovert and I just need to be around some people, then I'm inclined to cross from wisdom into foolishness, imposing on their privacy. But if I'm factoring for the reality that they may have something going on right now, there may be something up in their life that requires they be together as a family, independent of any friendly or neighborly influence, now I'm kept 
from crossing over that interpersonal relationship line between wisdom and foolishness. The problem that the foolish have in imposing on others and making of themselves an incredible aggravation is that they're always thinking of their own self-interest, never considerate of the needs of those with whom they might be connecting, even at the level of acquaintance. That's how you sort through, in principle, this distinction between wisdom and foolishness. We should be wise in order to be friendly. Here's the third thing. We'll wrap it up. Not only do you need friends, not only do you need to be friendly, you need the right kind of friends. We think, as Americans, as the sons and daughters of independence, that we are self-made men and women. But the truth of the matter is, you are the product of the influence of your parents as children, and as adults, you are the product of the influence of your friends. You need the right kinds of friends in your life. Proverbs 12, 26 says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Proverbs 18, 19, the Bible says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. Proverbs 21, 9, the Bible says, Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 22, 24, the Bible says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his way and set a snare for your soul. Proverbs 27, 17, the Bible says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Now, in each of those verses, the underlying principle is the idea that you and I are being shaped by the people we surround ourselves with. We need friends, and we need to be friendly, but we need to be surrounded with the right kind of people. Someone has said, it's almost a proverb in the culture now, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You are being shaped by the influences around you. Now, I get the balance that has to be found between being in the world and not of the world between being salt and light and at the same time finding the accountability and encouragement that comes with being connected to a local body of believers. You need people around you who you share some commonalities with, who resonate with you, who bear witness with you, who you are, with your passions, with your interests, with the stuff that you enjoy to do while at the same time creating enough friction and tension as to sharpen as iron sharpens Iron, you need the right kinds of friends. You need those folks around you. Now, we're practically out of time, so I'm just kind of land this thing. I really think, I am so thoroughly convinced that this is a critical issue for the church today. I really do. I just look around and I see a world of people who are living in isolation who are racked with sadness and depression and despair. I just see a world of people who need a friend. And who better than the people of Jesus to be a friend in that way? I, I've shared the story a few times along the way of coming to faith in Christ and coming to faith in Christ from a, a, an almost hopelessly sinful background. 
Like there were no friends that I could carry over from my pre-Christian life to now walking with Jesus that could be helpful encouragers to me in my new journey with Jesus. And those first months and years were lo- they were the loneliest months and years of my life. The first two years walking with Jesus was the loneliest season in all of my life. I got saved and baptized in a country church, a, a largely older church. This will sound totally egotistical and prideful, but from my perspective as a 19-year-old kid who felt he had it all buttoned up and all pulled together, there was no one in that church that rose to my level of cool. There was no way I was going to have any meaningful relationship with either they were old or they were dorky. And I was, in my estimation, anything but. How in the world am I going to make any kind of meaningful connection, build real relationships with these people? There are very few pastors, preachers who treat with any substantive level the book of Proverbs, but Tim Keller is one who has. He points out in his treatment of friendship from the book of Proverbs that there's a point in time in the ministry of Jesus, specifically in John 15, when Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. I lay down my life for my friends. It's, an, it's a small, subtle, but incredibly powerful change of terminology in the nature of Jesus' conversation with those. He's getting ready for his death. And he says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. I lay down my life for my friends. I, my oldest son is, is 18. He's a freshman in college, probably in this room somewhere. And, uh, and he's experiencing what I have been warning him he would experience since he was a freshman in high school. If you're a college student and you're a part of this congregation, if we've ever had any conversation at all, you've probably heard this from me. If you grow up as a kid watching television and you see everyone at college and you think that I'm going to go to college and it's just going to be one big fraternity party from the time I get there until the time I come home, independent of the restraints of my mom and dad's home. We're just going to fellowship and hang out, and it's going to be saved by the bell the college years for the next four years. That's what it's going to look like. And what you find is that unless you come into the university setting with some kind of athletic or fraternity or sorority connection, you can live in utter isolation for those four years of your life. Tens of thousands of students are living in a mass of multitudes all by themselves with no friend or acquaintance to call their own. It's like a middle school dance where all the boys are on one side and all the girls are on the other side and no one's mingling. Only in this scenario, the boys are not even willing to talk to the boys nor are the girls even willing to talk to the girls. And typically the way, typically the way the world prescribes you get beyond that awkwardness and established social connections it's through the breaking down of inhibitions and the use of alcohol or drugs or other means. There's so much pull. You think kids go away and they're rebellious and they do those things, but it's really an act of desperation trying to create some community in a setting where they have felt largely isolated from the community around them. Now, here's, here's the deal with John 15. It's in John 15 that Jesus says, and Keller points this out beautifully in his wrap-up of friendship. It's in John 15 that Jesus says, I've 
called you servants, but now I call you friends, and I lay down my life for his friends. In the very next verse, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And with regards to friendship, when you make your self-worth, when your identity is bound up in the notion that Jesus is your friend, when that becomes your identity, we might say, mimicking after the words of Jesus, you did not choose your friends, but God chose them for you. And I can look back across those two years of loneliness, laboring to learn to walk with Jesus, and the extraordinary ways that God placed people in my life that I connected with, that I, you know, you're just not going to connect with everyone, and you shouldn't feel the pressure to do that, right? Some people will just not be as cool as you are. God put people in my life. God connected me with brothers who loved me and encouraged me and provided just the accountability, just the nudge in a Godward direction that I needed at that season in my life. And in some strange way, as little as I have to offer, God was pleased to use me to make some investment in their life as well. If you will trust the great orchestrator of our life, who has made himself a friend of sinners, if, if you will spurn the ways, the means, and the mechanisms of this world for establishing community and security and friendship and relationship, you might be amazed at the ways that God provides supernaturally for this foundational, fundamental need that we have that we might not be alone. Trust Him. Trust Him. And the friend of sinners will provide friends for sinners who is iron sharpens iron so they might sharpen you in your journey to walk faithfully with Jesus. Aren't you glad for this? I want to point out something. Jesus refers to the disciples as friends. But that's a term that is exclusive to the disciples. In other words, the whole world doesn't get to be called a friend of Jesus. Only those who have believed the message of the gospel and repented of their sin. You don't get to be a friend of Jesus by accident. You don't get to be a friend of Jesus by fiat. You don't get to be a friend of Jesus arbitrarily. You don't get to be a friend of Jesus by birthright. You don't get to be a friend of Jesus by virtue of your ethnic or cultural background. You don't get to be a friend of Jesus because you're from Mississippi or the Bible Belt or because your grandpa was a deacon. We get to be a friend of Jesus by believing the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, that He lived without sin, that He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross by His own death, that buried in a borrowed grave, Jesus was raised again. Believing that message, we understand, we see, we regard Jesus as bearing greater value than any relationship or anything that this world could ever hope to offer. We run away from the stuff of this world and we receive the full embrace of the nail-scarred hands of the one who bled and died for us. That's what faith and repentance looks like. Dear friend, that is how we become friend of God. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word and for its wisdom. 
I pray, God, that you would make of us, of the body of Christ, a people who are characteristically friendly. Make us be the kind of people that the world loves to see coming. Make us be the kind of people who bring peace into contentious situations. Make us be the kind of people who walk worthy of our call, who emulate our Savior, who love you. And that love and affection is reflected in the things we say and the way we interact with those around us. God, I pray that you would guard us, lead us. May it never be said that the prickly nature of our personality, the severity of our tone or our poor selection of words ever served as any hindrance whatsoever to another coming to faith in Jesus. God, help us to be as gentle as doves and as wise as the fox. We ask it in the power of Jesus' name.